Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. All right, thank you, Olaba. Um, now, listening to his story reminded me of where I was you know, when I was doing my undergraduate studies. Uh, so just now, Pastor Seth mentioned that you know, I was uh, studying medicine. Um, so when I was doing medicine, I had many dialogues and interactions with my medical school classmates. Some of them were Buddhists, some of them were atheists. And I was trying to share the good news about Jesus with them, right? trying to um, bring them to Christ. But I was doing that. You know, I encountered um, many questions that they asked me. Right? So how do you know that there really is a God? Right? How do you know that Jesus resurrected from the dead? So they asked me a lot of these difficult questions, which I wrestled with. Right? Um, and so... I, I, I tried to look around right, for answers to their questions. And so this got me into apologetics. Okay, so I did uh, a lot of my private research online. And eventually, I was very happy to discover that actually throughout history, um, there have been uh, a lot of very thoughtful uh, scholarly Christians who have discovered that, you know, actually there are good answers right, to all these questions that people have been asking. And so as I discovered these answers, right, I became very happy. I became overjoyed. And as I um, pray more about this, I began to discover that God was guiding me right, into um, this ministry right, to um, do it full-time, right, to do apologetics. And so um, eventually, um, after working for seven years as a med- medical doctor, um, I eventually um, I, I, I sensed the calling of God right, to direct me in this direction. And so uh, I, I gave up my medical career, I stopped uh, practicing medicine, and then went on to uh, study philosophy and then theology, and now doing things related to apologetics. Now, um, now, some people will think that, wow, it's such a waste, right? You give up medicine. It's so difficult to get medicine at NUS, right? Well, you give up that, give that up, right, to do theology, right? So, you know, some people would uh, wonder about that. But I, I think people who ask that, um, who, who wonder about that, you know, they, they didn't uh, quite realize uh, two things. Now, one, one is that um, the, the value, right, of, of, of knowing God, right, which is the most incredible thing of all, right? To, to think that, you know, we can actually know the creator of the universe, right? Um, you know, there's nothing more worthy than that, right? To, than to know God and to um, receive eternal life from him, right? So, um, you know, sometimes I tell my students, right? I mean, you can be a doctor, you can treat patients, but one day they will still die, right? So, I mean, yeah, so you, you can... Uh, no, 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 uh, don't be... Sad. Now, I'm not saying that being a doctor is not, not good, right? So some of you here might be doctors. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Uh, sorry. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, no, yeah, so I wasn't... So, no, uh, no, of course, being, doing, treating patients are important. Saving lives are important, right? But it's even more important. I mean, if, if there's eternal life, right, then you can save someone from perishing and bring him to heaven, right? Bring him to eternal, uh, eternal, eternal glory. Now, that, that, you know, that just blew my mind away, right? That, that is so much more important important and valuable than just saving his physical life, right? So, yeah, so saving souls is what I'm really passionate about. Um, and I have realized that apologetics is a very important part of that. Why? Because it's important to let our friends know that what we believe is something real, right? That we're not just believing in some kind of superstition. No, we are, we're not just believing in some kind of crazy ideas, right? But um, we are believing in something real. And so when Alaba shared his testimony just now, right, um, he shared how you know, he took my classes, and after listening to my presentation, he came to realize that actually there's good evidence right, to show that God actually exists, right? that this is real, right? that God is real, Jesus is real, Jesus is God. 
uh, he's really God, right? That, so we have good reasons to believe in these things. And it's important to let our friends know about this. So let me, so I'm, so I'm going to do a short presentation about some of the important things which we can um, tell our friends and emphasize. Why is Jesus so unique, right? Why is he the only one? Okay, so when we turn to the Bible, we look at Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I'm going to take a, we are going to take a look at a few verses from uh, this chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, so this is verse 1 to 3. And then verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 12 says, To all who receive Him, to all, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is a wonderful passage in the Bible. Now, it starts by, now it, it talks about Jesus Christ, right? The Word, we know that the Word was Jesus, right? He became flesh. But what, what was the Word? Now, in the original Greek, right, the word was, uh, the word translated as word was logos, right? That's a Greek word, logos. And logos is a Greek word that is used to describe the divine principle, right? The divine principle that um, brings about, that through which all things came about, and through which all things are sustained in existence, right? So it's saying that uh, this word, right, was involved in the creation of all things. It's sustaining all things. It's the ultimate principle. Um, you know, something more ultimate than quantum physics, than whatever you study in science, right? This, this is the ultimate, right? It's talking about the ultimate one. And it's saying that this ultimate one was with God and he was divine. He was, with, he was God himself. So you see here, right, an uh, uh, expression of the doctrine of the Trinity where, you know, there is one God, but there's three persons within the one being of God. And the word was one of the persons within the divine being of God. And so he was in, he was already there in the beginning, right? So, uh, the word himself has no beginning, no end, he's eternal, and through him all things are brought into existence, right? So he is the one, he's the ultimate one, right? Who, through whom all through which all things came about. And then it talks about a very astonishing, amazing statement, which is that this out this word, you know, this ultimate principle, it became flesh, right? It took on a human nature and made his dwelling among us, right? So um and his name is Jesus, right? He's the person of Jesus Christ, right? He lived among human beings. And that, you know, he is full of God's glory, right? God, and he is full of grace and truth. And the Bible promised that to all who receive him, to all who receive Jesus, right? To those who believe in his name, right? We will be, have the right. We will become the children of God. And so this is the ultimate blessing, right? That God wants to give to us. So how do we know whether this is true or not, right? So is it true that there really is a God? Is it true that Jesus is God? Now, sometimes when we share with our friends the gospel, um, you know, sometimes uh, no, we need to start where they are, right? So um, for, for many, for, for some of our, our friends, they may not actually believe that there's a God, right? Some, some may be atheists. And so if that's the case, you know, if, you, if you just start by talking about Jesus, right? They, they will say, well, but I don't believe in God, right? So I, I don't believe that Jesus is God. So to help them, I, I think it's important that, first of all, you know, we show them that, that, is, that there really is a God right, who created the universe. 
And that was uh, what uh, Alaba shared just now as well, right? He was talking about how the Kalam cosmological argument, right, actually convinced him that there, there is a creator of the universe. So I'm going to talk about the argument uh, later. Um, but at this point in time, I just I want to sh I would like to share some perspectives from history, right, um, from the history of Christianity, so that you will have a um, deeper understanding of how we we ca we, we can do missions, right? How we can uh, do use apologetics uh, in in missionary work to, to witness right, to our friends. Now, in the second century, there was a guy called Justin Martyr. Um, and he was called the martyr because you know, he, he died for his faith. Right? So this, this was him, right? he, he was beheaded. So he, he died for his um, Christian faith. Now, he didn't start his life as a Christian. He was actually a, a non-Christian when he was uh, young. Uh, and he was a follower of Plato. A Greek, the, the great Greek philosopher, right? So he was a so Justin Martyr was a philosopher himself, and he followed the philosophy of Plato. And when he studied Plato, he came to realize that actually Plato believed that there's a god. And in fact, Plato formulated various uh, various proof to, to, to arguments to prove that there is a god. And one of the arguments that Plato formulated was the cosmological argument, which um, Alaba mentioned about like the, the cosmological argument. So the cosmological argument shows that uh, there is that the universe came from a first cause, right? that there is an ultimate first cause, which is a divine person. And so, and, and to know this God right, is to find the ultimate meaning in life. So that was Plato's philosophy. So you find that Plato's philosophy actually points people to God, right? to, to a creator, right? to, to a divine transcendent being. So after studying Plato's philosophy, Justin came to the conclusion that the most important thing in life right, is to look to God. Right? So I want to know this God. I want to look upon this God, no? for this is the, the most important. This is the ultimate, right? To know the ultimate reality. Right? This is the ultimate purpose in life. And so, played, so Justin was a seeker of God, seeker after God, right? He wanted to know this God because this is where Plato's philosophy pointed him to. And later, Plato, and, and then later Justin, he met some Christians, right? And these Christians were telling him that, you know, you know the Bible, right? And the Bible tells us about Jesus. And the Bible was written by eyewitnesses of Jesus. And the Bible contains historically reliable information about Jesus. So it tells us that Jesus was the Son of God. He came to the world, he died for our sins, and he resurrected from the dead. So when Justin studied the Bible himself, he became a Christian. Right? He also became a Christian. Because he, he became convinced that the biblical authors were witnesses to the truth, right? As we read just now from the Gospel of John, right? Jesus was full of grace and truth. And the, uh, the biblical authors, including John himself, right? They, they saw Jesus and they wrote down what they uh, saw about Jesus. So they were the witnesses to the truth. And that these events hap really happened. Uh, the, Bible, the events that the Bible talk about really happened in history. And the Christians both glorified God, the Creator, God the Father of all things, and proclaimed His Son, the Christ, sent by him. So Justin uh, realized that the historical evidence and the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus is the proof of the truth of Christian teaching. Right? So this is the proof that God, the creator of all things, has revealed himself in history through the person of Jesus and accomplishes, uh, accomplished God's promise for humanity. So Jesus is the saviour. And Christianity fulfilled the highest aspirations of philosophy, right? Because philosophy you know, points people towards the, the ultimate reality. And 
Christianity right, is the revelation, God's revelation uh, of that ultimate reality. And therefore, Christianity is the true philosophy. It is the highest philosophy. So after Justin became a Christian, he wrote a lot of books about Christianity, telling people why is it reasonable right, to believe in Jesus. And Justin, one of the things Justin emphasized was that the seeds of the word, the Logos, which John chapter 1 talks about, right? The Logos has been dropped everywhere, at least to some extent, in every person. So what he's trying to say is that even for non-Christians, right, they have some idea about God. So Plato is one good example. I mean, Plato never read the Bible before, but Plato did believe that there's a God. You know, Plato did believe that there's a first cause, right? And so um, Justin is saying that even for people who never read the Bible before, you know, they, they can know some truths about God. Um, and this is because the Logos has revealed himself through his general revelation right, to different cultures and different places to some extent. However, um, what people can know from general revelation is only fragments of the truth. Whereas Christians live according to the knowledge and contemplation of the whole Logos who is Christ. Because Christ is the embodiment of the truth. Right? It is the truth itself that came into the world. So uh, to present the fullest uh, version of the truth, and so Christians live according to the knowledge of the whole truth, or the whole Logos, who is Jesus Christ. And so this, um, so from what Justin says, you can see that you know, the, the Christian view of divine revelation is that there are two kinds of revelation. One is general revelation, and the other is special revelation. So general revelation refers to God revealing himself through his creation, through the universe which he created. So as Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature can be, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So what this is saying is that you know, people, when people look at the, study the universe, when people look at the night, night sky, when people look at the Milky Way, for example, and ponder about this, right, they can come to the realization you know, that I think there's some, someone up there, you know, there's somebody there who actually created these things. So this is general revelation. And this general revelation, um, the evidence of general revelation can be formulated in terms of various arguments, various proof of natural theology. And so one of the arguments, one of the proof to show that this universe is indeed, was indeed the creation of God is the cosmological argument, uh, which, I, which I mentioned just now. Uh, and it was formulated by Plato. And then there's the fine-tuning argument, you know, that which shows that the universe has a designer. And um, the arguments from the laws of nature, which indicate that there must be a lawgiver right, who created uh, these laws. And also the law of morality, right, the moral argument, which points towards um, a, a, a god right, who is the uh, god of, uh, who is the source of the laws of, of morality, who is the ground of objective uh, morality. So these are the arguments, right, various arguments to proof that you know, there is a God right, who created the universe and who is also um, the God of uh, uh, the, the, the source of the laws of morality. And then there is a special revelation which refers to how this God has revealed himself in history supremely through the person of Jesus Christ. So there is historical evidence to show that Jesus claimed to be God and that he resurrected from the dead to confirm that you know, to prove that he is God. And there's also evidence of the Bible, uh, for example, evidence of prophetic prophecy, that hundreds of years before Jesus came, right, 
in the Old Testament, the Bible already prophesied that the Savior will come one day. And then when Jesus came, he fulfilled those prophecies. So again, this is something miraculous and indicates that, that, that uh, the, there was divine intervention in history, that fulfilling the prophecy um, uh, that was recorded in the Old Testament. And this points you know, to, to uh, and this is an indication right, that the Bible was re divinely revealed. And also the uniqueness of the gospel, uh, which I'll talk about later on. Right? This is another evidence to show that Christianity is unique, that it is based on divine revelation, the revelation of God. So, looking back at history, we find that throughout history, there were various missionaries right, who tried to share the Christian faith right, with other people. And Justin Martyr was a missionary himself, right? so he presented apologetics, uh, used apologetics to, uh, to, do, to, to share the, the Christian faith. And another important missionary in history was this guy called Matteo Ricci. Now, Matteo Ricci was a Jesuit, he was a Catholic, and... Um, so I think Chinese people should know about him, right? Because uh, he was the one who uh, brought the, the, the gospel right, to China many years um, ago. Now, actually, he, he wasn't the first one. Uh, before him, there were already others, right? So actually, Christianity reached China in the 6th century, right? Through, um, there was the uh, evidence of that. But then, uh, during the 15th, 16th century, right, the missionary movement revived again, and um, Matthew Ricci uh, came from Europe, and brought the gospel to China. And you know, he had a reasonable success. Right? Quite, a, quite a number of people actually became Christians as a result. And by 1700, right, so about within 100 years, right, within less than that, you know, the number of Christians in China you know, was estimated at you know, about nearly 200,000. Right? So this is quite incredible. So, so he, you know, he, uh, a lot of people came to Christ um, through his missionary work. And so... Uh, we want to, so we wonder what's the secret of his success, right? Now, one secret of his success was actually the way he do, the way he did apologetics. Okay, so this is important. Now, one of the uh, person whom he brought to Christ was an eminent Chinese astronomer and politician called Xu Guangqi. Okay, so Xu Guangqi is known as the father of modern science in China. Okay? So even today, if you go to Beijing, right, you, you'll find you know, that uh, there are traces of him, Xu Guangqi, in China. Now, he became a Christian. He was a Confucius scholar, but he later became a Christian. Why? Because he perceived that science is in convergence with Christianity, but in conflict with Confucianism. Right? So this topic about science and religion right, is really important. It's really key. And just now, Alaba was talking about how he, he took my class on science and religion, right? So how he learned about some important uh, facts uh, on, in this area, on this topic. And this is really important uh, for missionary work, for mission. So Ricky... Richie, when he came to China, you know, he brought with him Western signs and, uh, and impressed a lot of people, but also to convince them that, that the Christian faith has the same form of truth as natural signs. Okay? So it is objective. Right? There's objective truth, just as science right, is, has this objectivity. Right? I mean, regardless of whether you believe in science or not, right? uh, if you jump down from 10 stories, you'll probably die. Right? So, I mean, you say, even if you say, I don't believe it, you'll still die. Right? So, whether you believe it or not, you'll still die. Right. That, that's natural law, right? So that, there's an objectivity about science, right? about um, the, uh, what scientists um, discover. And Xu Guangxi came to realize that the Christian faith is the same, you know, that there is a, this objectivity about the Christian faith that is based on objective evidence that indicate that Jesus really existed, you know, that God really existed, Jesus really existed, and Jesus really rose from the dead. 
And so um, in Xu Guangxi's mind, science was based on facts. Whereas Confucianism, uh, he was a Confucius expert himself, right? So when he began to reflect on Confucianism, he began to realize that actually it's as like fathoming the principle of, of you no, know, it's the Confucius theory of fathoming the principle of human nature found it to be only the fabrication, imagination, and vanity. And so, uh, uh, so she once he became a Christian, and he himself said that when Matthew Ritchie talked about the theory and principles, Ritchie always traced them back to the original and the reality, right? To give a deep explanation of things and to bring it back to the first cause, right? The ultimate reality, so that this is to avoid anything that was pure imagination, right? Go back to the right? The, the basic, the ultimate uh, root source. So. Um, and you know, a few weeks ago, I, I read this article published in Christianity Today. Um, and it says why Chinese evangelism today should start from the Big Bang. Okay, so I, I thought this article is pretty interesting. And it, it, it used the photo of Xu Guangxi and Matthew Ricci as the cover photo. It says that you know, we can learn a lot of things from history, right? how the missionaries did the missionary work. Um, so um, Matthew Ricci emphasized a lot about the relationship between science and religion. And today, um, this is, remains very important as well. And after Matteo Ricci, so now we, when we talk about the 20th, 21st century, we find that scientists have discovered the evidence which indicate that our universe was not always like that, right? It was not always um, like that, but rather our universe had an explosive beginning, right? Or you can call it expansion, right, from the Big Bang. So it wasn't always like that, right? But rather it expanded, right, from the Big Bang. Uh, and so this, and the Big Bang, uh, you know, indicates that you know, this, so the space and time right, uh, actually um, had a beginning, uh, the, the space-time of our universe right, had a beginning at the Big Bang. And so this seems to indicate that you know, the universe was not always like that. So something must have caused the universe to become like that. Right? And then we can talk about God right, being the ultimate first cause which brought about the universe and fine-tuned the universe in such a way that you know, this explosion right, will give rise to a universe uh, in which we can find you know, the, the, all these various systems which, we, uh, which scientists discover and study, such as the solar system, the galactic system, the quantum systems, biology, uh, no, um, uh, and then uh, in, in biology, you know, there, are, there are many you know, systems as well. Right? So, so the, the fact that these systems exist right, indicate that you know, this explosion, this Big Bang, is not a random explosion. Right? Why? Because if the Big Bang was just a random explosion, right, it would have just blow, blown things up. Right? It would just destroy order. Right? Now, I mean, if, if, now um, suppose there's an accidental explosion here at HMCC. Uh, we pray that that won't happen, right? But, um, <laughs> but just in case, right? Uh, so just in case this laptop will explode right, boom, right, in front of us. Okay? Now, um, will, will, will this bring about an aeroplane? Will this, will this explosion create an aeroplane? Will this explosion create an aquarium? Or or create a new laptop, a better one. <laughs> no, of course not, right? I mean, if, if it's an it's a accidental random explosion, it will just destroy things, right? It will result in disorder. It will result in chaos. It will destroy order, right? It will result in you know, this, this room, right? These things will become you know, disordered, right? Uh, so if that is the case, then how come is, why, why is it the case that you know, the Big Bang, how, why, why is it that, and, and the, the, the bang, you know, the big, at the, at the uh, initial state, of, you know, at the close to the initial state, the temperature was extremely high. Right? It's like um, you know, trillions and trillions of degrees Celsius. At such a high temperature, at such a, and, and it expanded at, you know, tremendous, um, at, at a tremendous rate. So such an explosive beginning, why, why didn't it you know, just destroy whatever order there was prior to that? But why, why did it give rise to a universe that can expand 
and expand and, and eventually led to the formation of stars, galaxies, planets, all these systems. And so when you think about this, right, you immediately come to realize that you know, this explosion is not an ordinary explosion, right? The Big Bang is not you know, it's, it's, it's a miracle, actually. You can, think of, you can use the word miracle to say, to describe this, right? Imagine the billions and billions of galaxies and stars all came from something that is smaller than an atom, right? And condensed, condensed state, and then it, it just bang, and give rise to these billions of stars and galaxies. Now, this, if there's a miracle, I think this is a miracle, right? I think this deserves to be called a miracle. This is amazing. And so scientists have discovered that there must be incredible fine-tuning right, of, of the initial conditions of the Big Bang. Um, so the entropy, for example, right, the degree of orderedness right, of, of things at the beginning must be incredibly low, right? It must be, have a very uh, fine-tuned uh, low entropy. And then the acceleration of the expansion uh, must be uh, extremely fine-tuned as well, right? such that eventually this, this expansion can give rise to all these systems which we see in the universe. So there must be incredible fine-tuning, which indicates that there must be a fine-tuner, right? There must be somebody who actually fine-tune the conditions. And so this is one evidence to show that you know, there, there is a God, right? That there's an intelligent being who created the universe using, using the Big Bang, right? So the Big Bang is not a random explosion, but rather it was caused by an intelligent creator, which brought about you know, all these amazing stars and galaxies and the systems we see in the universe. So... Um, I have written a few books about this, about the, about the ultimate beginning, ultimate origins. Uh, one of them is called God and Ultimate Origins, and the other is called The Teleological and Kalam Cosmological Arguments Revisited. Now, the second book is actually um, open access. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was partly funded by my university, which means that you can download it for free. Okay. So, yeah, do it now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't wait. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, all, I, I'm sure many of us like free stuff, right? I, me too. So, um, yeah, so you don't have to pay for it. You can just download it for free. Yeah, so you can go to Amazon.com uh, or, or go to my website, academia.edu. Yeah, you, can, you can download it for free and read it. It has a lot of, import, uh, a lot of useful, important information right, about um, the universe, ultimate beginning, and uh, the evidence to show that you know, there is a God, there is a creator. And all this information is, uh, you know, they are very important. So, uh, so to give an example, right, I have a friend uh, a Facebook, Facebook friend who wrote an email to me uh, a few months ago. Now he told me that, um, now he was actually a former nun, uh, um, he, no, he was actually a former Muslim. Sorry, that, that wrong is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the typo, yeah. No, this is not the result of Big Bang, right? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> all right. So, uh, you know, he, he wrote a very long message to me, okay? Uh, because he, he asked me a lot of questions about Christianity after that words. But the first part was actually very interesting, right? So he says, you know, I would like to begin by thanking you for um, your intellectual efforts at disseminating the case for theism and for the Christian faith. I was originally from a Muslim background, he says. And at one point, he, he became a convinced naturalist and atheist. And then he told me that his reading of my book, God and Ultimate Origins, my, my first book, right, um, was one of the key steps which led me back to theism as a law undergraduate. And then he was... Uh, he later embraced the Christian faith, and uh, later was, uh, um, yeah, and, and so, and so you know, he, that, that's how uh, he started his email. So I, I thought this is quite astonishing, because actually in, in this book, right, God and Autumn Origins, I, I didn't actually talk much about Jesus. <laughs> in fact, it was a book about cosmology, you know, the cosmological arguments, right? so I, I didn't talk much about Jesus, um, because it, it's supposed to be a, a book about philosophy, right? Um, but then this book actually led him to Jesus, so, you know, he let, he let him to realize that, you know, I, you know, there is a God. And once a, person realizes that, once a person realized that there is a creator God, a God who created the universe, 
it will be actually quite easy for him to realize that you know, um, Christianity actually fits this best you know, compared to other religions. Um, why? Because if you know about Buddhism, you find that actually Buddhism doesn't actually say that there is a first cause or there's a creator. No, Buddhism actually denies that. No, they, 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 you know, for, for them, this is not an important question. They didn't, Buddhism doesn't say clearly that the universe has a first cause. Right? Uh, now, if you look at Hinduism, you find that Hinduism has all kinds of views, right? um, different views. Um, so it's not clear. Um, but when you look at, but, so the only um, three uh, major religions that uh, actually clearly states that there is a, sing, that there is a, a, a first cause, a, a creator of the universe, is actually Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, right? So, so once a person became convinced that there is a creator God, right, then, and, he, and he want, if you want to look for God, right, uh, which religion should you consider? Well, uh, he, he can either choose to be a Muslim, or he can choose to be a Christian, or a Jew, or a Christian, right? So I think when a person considers these three options, right, would you want to be a Muslim, or would you want to be a Jew, Jew Jewish, or would you want to be a Christian, right? I think for most people, for many people, I think um, they, they would uh, prefer Christianity, right? And there are, of course, there are various reasons, right? But I'm going to explain later on why I think that this creator is Jesus. Why I think that is Jesus, right? So I'm going to talk about later. I'm going to talk about that later on. But at this point in time. I want to highlight the importance of you know, the, this cosmological argument. Um, and the cosmological argument answers the big question, right? In fact, the biggest question that we can uh, think about, that we can ask, which is why, where did everything come from, right? Is, that, is there a first cause? And if there is, why think that this first cause is God? So um, when we ask the question, where did something come from? We are actually asking a question about cause and effect. So if you ask me, where, where do I come from, right? I, I'll say that uh, I, I came from my parents, right? So my parents are the cause of my existence, right? Uh, so if you ask, um, where did my parents come from, right? Then, uh, well, my parents came from my parents' parents, right? My grandparents. And then if you ask, where did my grandparents came from, right? Uh, I'll say my parents' parents' parents. And then you, you begin to wonder, well, could it be an internet regress, right? Could it be that, you know, so uh, where did I come from, where did I come from? Have you asked that question before? Uh, maybe as a child, you, you disturb your parents, right? <laughs> Where did I come from? And then you keep asking, and then your parents will say, yeah, shut up, don't ask me anymore. <laughs> all right, so so that's that what happened a lot of times right, to people, you know, and they just say, ah, don't, don't bother, right? And, and, and that's just a pity, right? Because it, it kills the curiosity, right? That's bad, right? So actually, actually I think all of us are philosophers to start with, right? We, we ask these questions, right, when we were young, uh, but after we got to work, right, we are busy with earning money and things like that, so we forget about all these things. But actually, that's, that's a pity. <laughs> So I'm going to, and so I'm going to, so I'm, I would like to bring you back to, to the childhood days, right? Sweet childhood days, and to, to ask about these big questions, right? To think about where, where did all this come from? Where did everything come from? Now, um, yeah. So so this is a, a very important question, right? Um, and uh, we want to find out if there is a first cause, right? If if there is, why think that this first cause is God, right? So this way of thinking can actually lead us to God. Okay. So this is how the cosmological argument goes. Um, the cosmological argument. Uh, shows that there cannot be an infinite regress. Now, uh, why? There are actually a number of reasons which I talk about in my book. So in my book, I explain uh, three or four reasons why, the infinite, why an infinite regress is not possible. Now, um, because we don't have an infinite amount of time, right? uh, we don't have an infinite amount of time tonight, right? so I, I'm going to just talk about one of the reasons. Okay, so, uh, yeah, and so one of the reasons is called the argument from the viciousness of dependence regress. Okay, so, so let's imagine, right? Uh, let's think about this series of uh, uh, train cars, okay? And they were not moving initially. So before the last train car began to move, yes, the, the one before it has to begin to move first, 
right? Now, before that one begins to move, the one before before it has to begin to move first. Now, if that is all there is, I think, most of, most, I think we will all realize that none of them will begin to move, right? Because everyone is dependent on the one before it. You know? So none of them will just begin to move by itself. Uh, and they were not moving initially. And in order for them to begin to move, what is required is that there must be a first puller. There must be a first thing which doesn't depend on other things, uh, but it can have the ability to initiate movement by itself. So there must be a first independent puller. Such a thing needs to exist. Such a thing must exist in order that you know, the rest will begin to move. Okay, so this is pretty easy to understand, right? So, um, so likewise, before I begin to exist, my parents have to begin to exist first, right? Now, before they begin to exist, their parents have to exist, begin to exist first. Now, no matter how many prior dependent causes there are, none of them will begin to exist. Why? Because everyone is dependent on the one before it, right? No prior dependent cause escape from the problem of depending on the prior dependent member in order to begin to exist, right? So there's a vicious regress, right? So it's like, you know, I depend on my parents, my parents depend on my grandparents, my grandparents depend on my grandparents. It's just like you know, one train car depend on another train car, depend on another train car, right? If there is, if, if, if that's all there is, right? Then none will, none will begin to move, right? Because everyone is dependent on the one before it. So what is required, what must exist is there must, there must be a first cause which can exist independently. So there must be a first cause which doesn't depend on other things to exist before it, but it can exist by itself. It exists necessarily. Such a thing must exist in order that there are other things right, can begin to exist. Okay? So there must be such a first cause which can exist independently. So this is a simple proof right, to prove that there must be a first cause. Um, yeah, because every dependent cause will, will be a vicious regress. Right? So it must stop somewhere, it must start, or it must start somewhere right, with an independent first cause. And so the next question is, what is this first cause? Right? Why, why think that this first cause is God? Okay. Now, um, now, since the first cause is the first, it must be uncaused, right? It must, as I said, it must start somewhere. And since the first cause, since whatever begins to exist as a cause, the first cause must be without beginning. Okay, so this is quite easy to understand, right? Um, something does not come from nothing, okay? Um, so, um, you know, if, uh, as I said just now, right, if, if, uh, if there's a sudden explosion right here, right, you, you wouldn't say that the explosion came from nothing, right? You, you would want to discover the cause, right? You, you want to find out what, what caused the explosion, whether it's accidental causes or whatever, but you want to find out what's the cause. You wouldn't say that oh, uh, this explosion came from nothing. You, you wouldn't say that, right? That would be too irrational. That would be unscientific. So likewise, the Big Bang, the, the tremendous uh, explosion, right? Such, a, such an explosion must have a cause as well. I mean, if a small bang would need a cause, of course, the Big Bang will also need a bigger cost, right? It will also need a cost as well. <laughs> so this is pretty, uh, no, uh, pretty, pretty easy to understand, right? So, um, so this means that uh, whatever begins to exist must have, you know, must have a cause, because something does not come from nothing. However, if something has no beginning, then that means that that thing has always existed. Now, something that has no beginning will not require a cause, because something that has no beginning didn't come from anything. It didn't come from nothing. It didn't come from anything. It has always been there. That's what beginningless means, right? That's what without beginning means. So this means that um, the first cause must be without beginning, right? Since the first cause is without a cause, right? It means that the first cause must be something that has always existed, and therefore it can exist independently, and therefore it can be the first cause. So the first cause must be without beginning. Is it clear so far? Okay, good. Okay, I hope I'm following. All right, good. Yes. Okay, great. Uh, 
Yeah, that's all. That's what I always ask my students, right? To make sure that they're following. I hope they're not lost. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that you're not. Okay, great. Okay, that's good. Okay, so I can continue. Yes, good. Yes. All right. Um, now, the next point is to say, now, since every change is an event which has a beginning as something gain or lose a property, the first cost must be initially changeless. Okay, so what is it trying to say? Now, um, we know that things, now we, we see changes around us, right? Things change. Uh, so, for example, I've, I've grown older, right? That's a change. Um, I have some white hair now. I, I don't have white hair before, but now I have a white hair. Okay, so that's a change, right? So every change is something that has a beginning, right? So my hair became white, you know, uh, say, two years ago, something like that. So I began to have white hair two years ago. So every change is something that has a beginning. However, the first cause is without beginning, right? So this means that the first cause must be changeless initially. Okay? So it must be initially without change. And so this also means that um, the first cause is not a change or an event or something that happened, such as the Big Bang, right? Because the Big Bang is something that has a beginning. It began 13.8 billion years ago. Um, so the first cause cannot be the Big Bang. Rather, the first cause must be something that is um, beginningless, without beginning, and in initially changeless as well. Now, since the first cause is initially changeless, it will be something that is transcendent and immaterial. Now, why is that so? Because um, according to physics, physical things are constantly changing. Right? Quantum, uh, no, quantum fluctuations are constantly happening. So physical things are constantly changing. And when, we, and when we observe the universe around us, right, when we, we find that you know, things are also changing as well, constantly changing, right? Um, however, the first cause is initially changeless, which means that it transcends our experience, right? It transcends the universe. And it also means that you know, it is immaterial, right? It is um, something that uh, does not change at the initial state. And so um, we need to ask the question, so for something that is... Um, initially changeless, for it to bring about the first event from the initial state, right? whether the first event is a Big Bang or whatever, the first cause must have the capacity to bring about the first event in such a way that it is not determined by prior events. Why? Because the first cause is the first, right? So, the, so it cannot be the case that something caused the first cause to change and cause the first event. I mean, that, that, doesn't, that cannot be the case. Why? Because the first cause is supposed to be the first, right? So it's supposed to be able to bring about the first event by itself. And also, the capacity to prevent itself from changing, for otherwise it will not have been initially changeless, right? So the first cause must be able to prevent itself from changing, but also be able to bring about the first event by itself. So these two capacity, um, uh, in, in Chinese you can call it the show fang ru, right? You can show, you know, go fang, right? You can withhold, but can also freely bring about. So this shows that you know, the first cause uh, is a free agent, is something free. It's not, it's not, like, a, it's not like, like, like a natural law, right? but rather it's something that can freely bring about the first event by itself. And so the first cause has libertarian freedom. It's a free, um, free agent, which means that it's a person, which means that it's a personal creator who can freely choose to, to, um, to not to create the universe, but can also freely choose to create the universe. Right? So that is his own free choice. So the first cause is a personal free agent who freely brought about um, the, the universe. And the cosmological argument can also be combined with the fine-tuning argument I mentioned just now. It can be combined with the design arguments, right? Um, and so the next step is to say that in order to bring about a universe with its sophisticated uh, mathematical laws of nature, the first cause must be highly intelligent, or you know, to use the words of Einstein, a superior mind. Now, if you look at uh, these photos, right, you see um, the one here on the beach. I, I was here, right, these words. <laughs> right. Now, do you see anybody there? Do you see anybody there? Uh, no, nobody, right? You don't see any person there. 
Um, but even though you don't see anybody there, but you know that somebody must have been there before, right? Why? Because you know that you know, these words, I was here, you know, they couldn't have just came about by chance or by random forces or by natural forces, right? You know that the, the waves of the ocean or you know, the random um, blowing of the wind wouldn't have produced such words. And so this must be the work of an intelligent designer. Somebody intelligent, intelligent must have written these words. Now, when scientists study the laws of nature, they discover that the laws of nature is even more amazing than the words I was here. Right? So when scientists discover, study nature, they discover, for example, E equals mc squared. Okay. Now, where did that come from? Um, now, when people think about E equals mc squared, people immediately think about Einstein, right? Now, did, did, but did Einstein actually create the E equals mc squared? He only discovered it, right? Um, before Einstein discovered E equal mc squared, E is already equal mc squared, right? It was already there. So Einstein did not create E equal mc squared. Einstein only discovered E equal mc squared. So where did E equal mc squared come from? Why is it like that? You know, who, who, who actually created it? Now, if you ask Einstein, he will say that, no, there's a superior mind who created this. No, there's a mind behind the universe, right? And so there are so many, there are thousands of equations in physics. Uh, you know, far more, um, they contain far more information then I was here, right? These simple words, this is too simple, right? And so far more uh, sophisticated, far more order, a high degree of order right, in the universe, which can be described using all this um, high level mathematics. And so this um, high degree of order, right, it couldn't just be, you know, this amount of information, it couldn't just be the result of random forces or natural forces. Rather, it indicates that there is an intelligent cause, intelligent creator who created you know, this, uh, laws of nature, and so this laws of nature must have come from a lawgiver, right? Uh, intelligent creator. And finally, in order to bring about a universe with its billions of stars and galaxies, right, the first cause must have enormous power as well, right? To bring about you know, this uh, huge universe, and therefore we arrive at the conclusion that you know, there must the universe must have come from a first cause that is uncaused, without beginning, initially changeless, transcendent, immaterial, and has freedom, and it's also highly intelligent and powerful. Now, such a first cause is a creator of the universe, right? It, it means a creator god of the universe. And therefore, we can be sure you know, that there must be a creator of the universe. Right? God, there, must, uh, there must be a god, right? So we can know that God exists. It's a fact, right? It's an objective fact, right? It's real, okay? God really exists. Okay, so, um, and so once we realize that God exists, right, then the next question we, we will want to ask is, so how, how, so how do I know this God? Right? How, how can I um, know more about him? How can I find about him? Right? How, how can I um, seek him right? and, and know more about him? And um, so for the last few slides, I will want to present the evidence, the reason why we can know God through Jesus. So there are three reasons why Jesus is unique and worthy. There are three reasons why, you know, um, through Jesus, we can know God. The first reason is the uniqueness of his resurrection. Um, and the second reason is the uniqueness of his claim. Okay? And the third thing is the uniqueness of his death. Okay? So I'm going to talk about these three points. The uniqueness of his resurrection, the uniqueness of his claim, and the uniqueness of his death. So let's start with his resurrection. Now, um, all religions 
have something to say about life after death, right? If you look at all religions, all religions have something to say about life after death. However, there's no historical evidence to show that their founders, the founders of any of these religions, could overcome death, except Jesus. So if you uh, look into Islam, right, you, uh, you, you, you find that uh, Muhammad, you know, he, he, talk, he, you know, he did talk about life after death, he, he talked about heaven and hell, and also resurrection, but he didn't resurrect. Right? His body is buried in um, Mecca. Um, he didn't rise from the dead. Now, if you look at Buddhism, um, Buddhism talks about reincarnation, talks about nirvana. However, Gautama himself, well, he was believed to have attained nirvana. That's what Buddhists believe. Right? But then, nirvana was, is not uh, something that people can see. Right? It's, uh, it's just their belief, but nobody can actually uh, see nirvana or you know, to have uh, some kind of um, um, empirical evidence right, to show that nirvana actually exists. Do you know this guy? Um, he, he, now, he, he is a, a, a guru, right, from a, a, a Hindu guru, Sai Baba. So, um, now, he, he also claimed that uh, he is somebody special. Um, and he, he actually claimed that you know, he, he can do whatever things that Jesus could do. You know, he actually said that in one of his books, um, which, which I read before. However, he, he died a number of years ago, and his body is buried somewhere in, in India. He didn't rise from the dead. His body is still there in India. So all religions have something to say about life after death, but there's no evidence to show that, to prove that any one of them could actually overcome death. And so the resurrection of Jesus is very unique in this regard, you know, in the sense that we do have good historical evidence to show that Jesus truly resurrected from the dead. Um, I think this is not working. I don't know why. Right? Can you help me click the next slide? Okay, oh, okay, good enough. Okay, so um, now I don't have time to talk about all this evidence in detail because we are running out of time. And so um, now I, I, I think that I may be coming next year during close to Easter, right, to talk about resurrection. Uh, I, I think uh, Pastor Bo was telling me about, uh, Pastor Seth was telling me about that. So, so yeah, so I, I will talk, uh, yeah. So um, I will give a fuller talk about the resurrection, right, uh, next time I, I'm here, okay? Yeah, um, yeah, so, so this, this is a trailer, okay, yeah, to let you know. Now, um, so, so I will just briefly summarize some of the evidence, some of the points. Now, um, one important point uh, to note is that despite disagreements about various aspects of the New Testament, there is actually widespread consensus among historians uh, of the following facts, right? So historians disagree. Um, when I talk about historians, there are, there are different kinds of historians, right? So there are, there are historians who are atheists, are Christians, Muslims, right? all kinds of different kinds of historians. So they disagree about different parts of the Bible. Right? Some argue that it's reliable. Some argue that it's not reliable. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go into that debate. Uh, we don't have time tonight. But I just want to highlight one point, which is that even though they disagree about different parts of the Bible, there's actually widespread agreement among them, even among non-Christians, of the following facts. And the first fact is that they agree. Historians, um, you know, there's widespread consensus among historians that Jesus was a real historical person, right? Uh, he lived in the first century, and he was crucified uh, around the year AD 30 by the Romans under Pontius, uh, so, um, Pontius, under Pontius Pilate, right? So, um, so he died as a result of uh, Roman crucifixion, right? So this is the first historical fact that almost all historians agree. And the reason why they all agree is because there are multiple independent early historical sources that indicate that this event happened. That Jesus really existed and that he really died, on, uh, that he was really crucified, right? So multiple independent early first century sources, um, and 
And there's also um, Christian sources and also non-Christian sources as well, right? So the Roman historian Tacitus uh, also mentioned that Jesus was crucified. And the first century Jewish historian uh, Josephus, uh, he, he was not a Christian himself. He was a non-Christian, but he also acknowledged that you know, Jesus existed and talked about Jesus' brother called James, right? He mentioned that in all his book. And so because of um, all this evidence, right, from both Christian and non-Christian sources, and you know, all the ancient uh, historians, authors, they all agree that Jesus actually existed. None of them disagree. You know? uh, no, 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 none of them deny that there, there was such a person. So, so we can know that you know, for a fact that this person really truly existed, right? Uh, and he was uh, crucified by the Romans. And the second historical fact is that very soon afterwards, a number of people, up, very soon after he was crucified, a number of people had experiences that they believe were appearances of the risen Jesus. You know, so a number of people, you know, they actually um, claimed to have seen him alive right, after he was crucified on the cross. And the third, and, and this was what you know, started to uh, get Christianity going, right? Um, and, and, and allowed Christianity to spread after Jesus was, died on the cross. And the third historical fact is that the body of Jesus was missing. So the body was no longer there, right? And, and so this is, unlike, um, this is unlike Muhammad, for example, right? Muhammad's body is still there in Saudi Arabia. Uh, uh, Gautama's body, right? It was supposedly um, become a right? It was cremated and became, you know, there were some remains. Uh, and then uh, Sai Baba's body is still in India, but Jesus' body is gone. It's no longer there, it's missing. So these three historical facts are widely agreed by historians. So these this are based on multiple independent early sources. So um, all the evidence indicate that uh, these things happen. So how do we explain these three facts? Now, um, there, there are uh, various uh, debates right, about how to explain these three facts. But eventually, we'll come to realize that actually the only reasonable explanation is that Jesus died and he resurrected. That was why the people actually saw him alive, and that was why the body was missing, right? So the missing body is uh, evidence of the objectivity of his resurrection. And so to, so, uh, to quote from a well-known historian of early Christianity, um, N.T. Wright, he says, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind, behind him. So anti Wright is saying is that you know, he's saying that unless Jesus actually rose again and left an empty tomb behind him, Christianity couldn't have started. Christianity couldn't have begun. Christianity would have ended when Jesus died on the cross. Right? That, that would be the end of the story. It couldn't have progressed the way it did. And so there's good historical evidence to show that you know, Jesus actually rose from the dead. You know, he actually overcome death. Uh, and so this is the first unique thing about Jesus. So so given that Jesus could overcome death. So this shows that you know, um, we have, we, this gives us good reason right, to believe about what he says about life after death, right? Um, so because he could overcome death, he could tell us where will we go after we die, right? Because he could overcome death, therefore, you know, he, there's good reason to believe that he could give us eternal life. Uh, therefore, there's good reason to believe that what he says about eternal life is true, right? Because he could overcome death himself. And there's good historical evidence to show that he did overcome death. And so this gives us good reason to believe that uh, those who believe in him will have eternal life. Now, the second um, 
Okay, so I have written about this uh, in a number of books as well. Okay, so um, one book is called The Origin of Divine Christology, and this book is published by Cambridge University Press. And the second book, Investigating the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this book is published by Routledge, uh, another world-leading academic publisher. Now, this book is also open access. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so isn't it good that I come today to you know, like, share, know that all this, all this free stuff, right? <laughs> so that you can, yeah, uh, you know, we, we can all benefit from it. Yeah, uh, praise the Lord. So, so this... Um, yeah, so please download this book. Right? You'll find that there's a lot of information in this book. And so this book answers all kinds of objections to the resurrection. Right? So various people have raised different uh, questions or objections about resurrection, and this book has answered them. And so uh, this book provides a very rigorous proof right, to show that Jesus truly resurrected. And, um, and this is a historical fact. Okay, so let me move on to the second um, claim about, the second unique thing about Jesus. So the first unique thing was that he resurrected from the dead, right? he overcome death. And the second unique thing about Jesus is that it's his claim, you know, his claim about himself. So I would like to quote from C.S. Lewis, who is a professor at Oxford University. Now, Lewis was a former atheist. He was a non-Christian before, but he later converted to Christianity. Now, and one reason why he converted was because when he studied the life of Jesus, he recognized that there's something unique about Jesus, which he didn't find in other great religious teachers. So this is what Lewis uh, realize. He says, I'm trying, to, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, a lot of people say that. Okay. However, Louis say, this is one thing which, one, which we must not say. Why? Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said will not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, a crazy guy, on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else you'll be the devil of hell, right. a liar, an evil person who deceives uh, the rest of mankind. So you must make your choice. Either Jesus was or is, and is the son of God, or else he was a madman or somebody worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that after studying the evidence, right, he came to the conclusion that it is obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely that it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So this was Lewis' conclusion after he studied the historical evidence concerning Jesus. Now, um, this is a very uh, remarkable um, statement. And it is, it is actually a very thoughtful uh, statement because it actually makes us, force, no, it actually compels us to make a decision. We have to, we have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Right? Who do you think Jesus was? Do you think that he was a crazy guy? Uh, who didn't know what he was talking about when he said that he was God? Or do you think that uh, he was the greatest liar of, of history, right? Who deceived people that uh, he was God? Or do you think that he was God? Okay. So this is a question that uh, we would need to answer. Now, um, and when we compare Jesus with other great moral teachers, we find that there's a difference. And that's the, reason, that's, that's the second reason why Jesus was unique. Because other great moral teachers like Gautama, Confucius, Lao Tzu, no, they did not claim to be God. No, they didn't, uh, I mean, they, they were honest enough right, to say that they're not God. They're not the creator of the universe. Uh, however, Jesus did make such claims. And you find such claim in uh, a number of first century sources. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, no, these are all written in the first century. Now, um, some skeptics and Muslims have argued that, well, maybe the gospel writers just make things up. So they, they think that uh, 
Jesus, so for, for Muslims, for example, Muslims, now Muslims believe that Jesus existed. Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet, but Muslims did not believe that Jesus was God. So Muslims, uh, when they read the Bible, they will think that no, this, the Bible has been corrupted, distorted. They think that you know, this, uh, the gospel writers make Jesus say that he was God, but Jesus himself never said that he was God. Okay? So that, that, was how, uh, that was what uh, Muslims would say. However, this view does not fit with the historical evidence. So as I explained in my book, published by Cambridge University Press, the, the book, Original Divine Christology, I uh, presented the evidence to show that now if the Jesus of history, this Jesus, he, if he did not claim and show himself to be God, the earliest Christian leaders who were ancient monotheistic Jews, they would, they would not have come to the widespread agreement that Jesus was God. But they did. Okay? So um, to understand this point, we need to understand the historical background of the, of early Christianity. Now, the historical evidence indicates that the earliest Christian, the earliest Christian's leaders, people like the 12 disciples, you know, people like Paul, they were all Jews. They were Jews, right? And for these Jews, you know, the Jews, they, they, their beliefs were very different from other people in the ancient world. So when we compare um, the beliefs of other people in the ancient world, people like ancient Romans or ancient Greeks or ancient Chinese or ancient Indians, we find that you know, for, for many other ancient cultures, many, many ancient peoples, they, they believe in many, many gods. Right? They believe uh, that, and, they, and it's very easy for them to believe that a human being is God, right? So for example, in the Chinese um, tradition, uh, there are people who believe in uh, Guan Gong, right? And Guan Gong was supposed to be Guan Yu, right? Who was supposed to be a general. And after he died, right, uh, people divinize him, you know, make him into a god to worship. So this is very common uh, in many ancient cultures. However, the Jews reject this idea, right? Because for the Jews, the, the Jews believe that people should only worship the creator of the universe. Only the creator of the universe should be worshipped. So people should not just worship any other human being, right? Um, so even though the Jews respected Abraham, but they did not worship Abraham, even though the Jews respected um, Moses, but they, didn't, but, they didn't, but they didn't worship Moses. So why would the earliest Christians who were Jews, why, how did they come to believe that Jesus, how, how did they come to worship Jesus? Why would they worship Jesus as God? Now, the only reasonable historical explanation is that Jesus must have claimed to be God and proved himself to be God. And that was why the earliest Christians who were his followers, that was how they could have come to the widespread agreement that among themselves that you know, Jesus was truly God. So this means that Jesus himself must have said that he's God. Right? Otherwise, the earliest Christians wouldn't have believed that he was God. Right? They would say that oh, even he himself doesn't believe. Right? So why wouldn't we say that he's God? Uh, uh, and so they, they wouldn't have believed that he's God unless he himself claimed to be God. So we have good historical evidence. Uh, we have good historical reason and multiple independent first century sources, right, which indicate that Jesus did claim to be God. And so this is very astonishing if you think about it. Right? So uh, a, a human uh, uh, a person actually claiming to be the God who created the universe. So given this astonishing claim, there are only a few possibilities. If what Jesus claimed was not true, then either... He knew what he claimed was not true, but he still claimed it, which means that he's a liar, right? the greatest liar in history, <laughs> right? what C.S. Lewis was trying to say. Or he didn't know what he was talking about. He didn't know that what he claimed was not true. So either he was intellectually deficient, right? Um, <laughs> okay, he didn't, he, didn't know what, he didn't know what the word God means, right? so he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, or he was sincerely mistaken, right? Um, Gao Chao. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, sorry, I, I didn't know. <laughs> <Go sorry. All> right. <laughs> no. But the thing is that all, all these other possibilities are, you know, are, are implausible, right? 
could it, could it be that you know, he could he be a liar? Now, e even atheists such as Richard Dawkins admit that you know, Jesus was a was a good man, right? Um, you know, uh, he talked. Uh, he he he. Dawkins liked Jesus' stance on human rights, on human worth. He liked his patience, kindness, compassion, and love. So it seems utterly implausible to think that you no, know, this guy could be the greatest liar in history, right? To, you know, to deceive people, to to die for him, and uh, to to die, and he himself also died right, for what uh, he knew was a lie. I mean, that that just that just doesn't make sense. And so he is, it is highly unlikely that you know, somebody who taught such high moral standards as love your enemies, right? And who uh, say, let your yes be yes and no be no. And who must have been able to consistently live up to such a high standard in the presence of his disciples in order that they, these monotheistic Jews, would worship him as divine, right? So he must be able to have lived up to this standard and, uh, as, uh, and astonishingly such that they would worship him as divine. So it's very unlikely to think that such a person Right, could have consistently lied about his identity and caused others and even himself to die for what he knew was a lie. So this just doesn't make sense. You know? um, and moreover, if you were a liar, right, you wouldn't want to try to deceive people that you are God in first century Palestine in, in, among the Jews. Why? Because it would, have been a, it would have been a very dangerous thing to do. Um, why? Because, because people would throw stones at you, right? People would kill you, right? Because this will be idolatry, right, in the eyes of the Jews. And it would have been very easy for the disciples of Jesus to know that someone is not the creator of the universe if he wasn't. Okay? So you can imagine, um, you know, Jesus going across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and then there was a you know, storm, right, raging. And then the disciples re realized that their, their lives were in danger, right? And then they woke Jesus up, right? Jesus, save us, right? Now, imagine that you know, Jesus uh, woke up, right? And then Jesus says, stop, okay? Stop. <laughs> right? uh, but then it, it, it didn't stop. <laughs> right? uh, now, uh, well, the disciples will say, well, uh, <laughs> so I, <right>? crazy guy. <laughs> oh, okay. How can he be God, right? This is just a crazy man. Uh, forget about it, right? So, so if that were the case, the disciples wouldn't have come to believe that he was God and be willing to die for him, right? For, for this belief. And to be willing to go to hell for it, right? Because the, the, remember, remember the disciples were Jews, right? They believed that if they worship, if, uh, uh, if they falsely worship someone as God, now this will be idolatry, right? This will be condemned by God in hell, right? So, um, so you find that, um, so um, there, there's no way that the disciples could have come to the widespread agreement right, that, that this guy uh, is really the God who created the universe. Um, it would have been very easy for the disciples to know that he's not God, right? If he's not God, right? If he couldn't just heal someone, uh, like pressing the eye, but the guy is still blind, right? So, um, so the disciples must have encountered many situations uh, in the first century Palestine, which they could easily have known if Jesus is not God. And so if you were a liar, you wouldn't do a stupid thing, right? To try to prove that you're the God who created the universe, right? In first century Palestine. So this hypothesis uh, is utterly implausible. And therefore, the only reasonable explanation is that you know, it is, so it's unreasonable to think that you know, he was a liar or he was uh, uh, intellectually deficient uh, or someone who was sincerely mistaken. Right? It's, it's unlikely to think that such, people, you know, such a person could have managed to trick a group of first century Jews who held to a strict monotheistic belief to come to the widespread agreement that he was the perfect, all-holy, almighty creator of the universe and to be willing to die for him. And also to rise from the dead. Right? So, um, and therefore, 
Um, no, because the difficulty of such a task is so immense that hardly any first century Jew would have attempted to do this, let alone be successful at carrying it out. And so uh, the only reasonable answer is that why would Jesus claim to be God, right? So who is Jesus? I think the only reasonable answer is that he is God, right? That's why he said that he's God. That's why he said, and he proved that he's God uh, by his miracles, by his sinless life, and by his resurrection from the dead. So finally, the third unique thing about Jesus right, is his death, his death on the cross. Now, this is also something very unique. Why? Because, again, if you, if you do comparative religion, right, if, if you compare uh, different uh, founders of different religions, we find that, uh, well, um, Muhammad, you know, he died from an illness. Uh, Gautama, uh, he died, according to some sources, from illness, and according to some sources, you know, he ate some uh, contaminated meat, and then he died. Uh, and if you look at Sai Baba, he also died from natural causes. But Jesus' death was on the cross, and it was actually uh, unique in the sense that it fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. And it was a death that accomplished salvation right, for all of us. So this is something that is very unique about Jesus' death. His death is not ordinary. Right? So uh, you can look at this passage from the Bible. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So this is talking about how Jesus would suffer and die on the cross to accomplish salvation for us to bring us into a relationship, uh, to, 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 a, to a relationship with God, right? to, to, to die for our sins, to pay the price which our sins deserve so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled with God and know God as our Father. Right? So this passage talks about this. And when we read this passage, we immediately realize that it's talking about Jesus. But the amazing thing about this passage is that it was actually written a few hard years before Jesus. This was in the Old Testament. This is not the New, this is not the New Testament, right? This is the Old Testament. So this was written in the book of Isaiah. It was written uh, a few hard years before Jesus. So you find that you know, a few hard, even before Jesus was born, right? There was already this amazing prophecy that says that you know, one day a Savior will come, a Messiah will come, and he will die right, for our sins, so that by believing in him, right, our sins can be forgiven. And so we see this prophecy fulfilled word by word, right? Um, detail by detail in the life and death of Jesus. And so you know, this is another evidence right, to show that you know, the Bible is divinely revealed, right? That Jesus is God, right? Because otherwise, you know, how, how could you know, um, it have been prophesied a few hundred years even before Jesus was one, right? And told in such great detail about Jesus. So Jesus claimed to be God. Now he proved to be God by his resurrection. And his death on the cross right, fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy and give further evidence right, to show that he is God. He is the God right, who came into the world to accomplish salvation for us. And this is an amazing, this is an amazing good news which we find in the Bible and only in the Bible, but we don't find it in any other religions. So if we look at other religions, we find that all religions recognize that 
there is something wrong with the human condition, right? All religions recognize that uh, we are not perfect, and uh, there is suffering in this world, and we will all die one day. And so all religions try to propose some kind of solution to these problems. However, you realize that all other religions say that in order for us to be delivered from this imperfect condition, we have to work hard for our salvation, right? You have to uh, do good works. You have to be a good boy, be a good girl, right? You have to um, be a good person, right? You have, you have, you have to um, um, meditate, right? Or siulian, um, right? To train yourself, right? Make yourself um, to uh, think correctly, work correctly. You know? So you have to work very hard you know, towards perfection, right? You have to uh, try to do more good works than your bad works so that after you die, um, you will go to a better place, right? So, so that is what all other religions teach, um, that we have to try to save ourselves, right, from, um, this, our, from, from this condition, from our imperfect condition. However, the problem is that if you, if you, try, if you try that, right, if you try to um, meditate, if you try to work hard, you, come, you, you very soon come to realize that you, know, you are still imperfect. So you, know, you, you can try to be a good person, but then um, you, 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 you cannot be sure whether the next moment right, you'll do something wrong again, right? or you may think about something wrong, and uh, you may say something wrong, or you may have the wrong thoughts, or whatever. So, um, so people very soon came to realize that, you know, that we, are, we are imperfect, and of course, we should try to do good works, you know, we should try to um, be a better person, but none of us can actually attain a perfect standard. None of us can actually reach perfection. Uh, so none, none of us can uh, actually have the power to deliver ourselves from our imperfection and from and from death, right? None of us could actually overcome that. So, so we are all um, in 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 this kind of state where we couldn't actually deliver ourselves from it. Now, um, but what the Bible says right, is the ultimate good news, right? The Bible says that God has accomplished salvation for us. So. Our salvation, no, because Jesus came into the world, right, to bear the price of the punishment of our sins, so that by believing in Him, our sins can be forgiven by God, and we can be with God forever, right? So salvation is by His grace, right? It's by His grace that we can be saved. So it is not we trying to save ourselves. Now that is hopeless, right? But it's God who came into the world, right, to save us, to bring us back to Him, and so this is the ultimate good news, and this is the only way. This is the only way that imperfect people can be with a perfect God forever, right? So you find that you know, God has already provided the solution for us, and it's an amazing solution, right? It's an amazing message, and it was prophesied in the Bible a few hundred years before Jesus, and this message is unique, right? It's the only, um, it's different from all other religions, because as I said earlier on, all other religions say that you have to do something to save yourself, but only Christianity says that now, of course, Christianity also says that we have to do good, right? But that is not, but we, we, that is not, that we can never be good enough. And the only way we can be saved is because of what God has done for us on the cross. And we are saved by grace, right? And so this is something very unique about the Christian proposal, about the, about the solution which Christianity offers, which you don't find in other religions, but only in Christianity. And so this made me realize that there is actually, no, this is another evidence to show that Christianity is not man-made. It's not something that people imagine, right? Uh, why? Because if Christianity is just a man-made religion, then you would expect to find a similar 
solution, right? similar proposal as other religions, right? Uh, it'll, it'll be similar like other religions. You will say, okay, you have to do work hard, you know, do good, be a good boy, then you can be saved. But what we find in Christianity is something totally unique. It's not something that we can do, right? It, but it's something that God has done for us. And so this is, and so the uniqueness of Christian message, together with the evidence which I presented earlier on, the evidence about the Kalam argument, which proves that there is a God, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, uh, which confirmed his claim to be God, right? So, um, so all this evidence taken together makes me realize that you know, this is real, right? This is, Christianity is not something that people invented, but rather it's something that God revealed to us. It came from God to show us, to tell us how we can be reconciled with God and how we can be delivered right, from our problems and how we can be with God forever. So when Jesus died on the cross, right, he says, it is accomplished. Right? He says, this is finished. Okay? So this is the most amazing statement of all. Right? He says, it has been done. It's done. So he has already accomplished salvation for us. Right? So this is the ultimate good news. And so because of this, right, we know that if we believe in Jesus, right, we can be saved from our sins. We can be forgiven and we can be with God forever. Okay, so this is, and we can discover the real meaning of life. We can live a meaningful life and after we die, we can be with God forever. Right? So this is the ultimate good news. This is the solution. This is the way to be safe. Right? This is the way to be safe from all our difficulties, all our problems. And the only solution, right, to, and the ultimate solution right, to humankind's problem. And that's the reason why right, I'm so passionate right, about the gospel, about sharing this with others, because after I studied all this in detail, I come to realize that you know, this is the only way. Right? This is the way to save us. And so uh, at, this time, at this point in time, I would like to give an opportunity right, to some of friends among us. So some of us here may, may not have received Christ yet. Some of us may still be seekers. Some of us here may still be um, unbelievers, uh, may still be uh, trying to find out about the truth. So tonight, I would like to give an opportunity right, to all of us here. So if you haven't received Christ yet, you can um, receive him tonight. You can pray this prayer with me. Right? So I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you would like to receive Jesus, right, you can invite him to come into your life, right, to be your savior and to be your Lord. And you will experience the presence of God in your life. And, you will, um, and he will be with you forever. Right? So we know from the, all this evidence, we know that this is true. Right? Uh, we know that this is real. But in order to experience him, you will need to receive him right, into your life. And he's willing to come into your life. Right? He's willing to come into our hearts because he loves us. Right? He wants to forgive us and to save us. Okay, so uh, why not at this moment? Right, let us uh, take a time. Let us close our eyes okay, and have a time of prayer. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.